Go ahead and open up Deuteronomy, chapter 31, because that's where we're going to be. Hey, guys. <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't hold out. Hey, uh, if you've never seen me before, my name's Jason. There's so many people in the first service I've never seen before, and some here, too. I'm... I actually work here. Um, I'm the lead pastor. Uh, I've been on sabbatical break because we have a fantastic church filled with amazing people and members and leaders, and they kicked me out for a couple months so that we could have a really good break, and it was really good. So thank you for that. We really appreciate that. And one of the things that really confirmed to me is, man, the Lord has this. This is, a, this is an amazing church. I'm just going to gloat on you for a little bit. It's really fun to pastor you, if I can say that. And pastors normally don't say anything's fun when it comes to ministry. So thank you for that break. It's great. Um, one of the things that I noticed on the sabbatical break from work was that when you're alone on your own, and Christy and I got to do some traveling, when you have work severed, and you don't have a lot of people around you that you know, and you have a lot of free time, when things are quiet, you notice things in your soul that start to warm their way up that you have never thought of consciously before. You don't have the busyness of life to drown it out. You don't have work to take away free time. In fact, you have so much free time that these questions start to nag like, hey, what about us? So I had some of those, right? We would probably call those doubts in the modern church. Now, these weren't like, do I believe God is real or anything like that? But it was like more like, why, God? Why is it so hard? Why is, why is it so hard right now for people and for the church. Hey, why, why about that person who I've been praying for for decades who is at the cusp of coming to you and now they completely reject you? Why is that? Like, I, I just, how is this really all going to work out? So during that time, I had a chance to actually sit with the Lord and have those conversations. And as I did that, the Lord helped me understand that this is not a new or modern thing that I was experiencing. That our church and our people have questions and concerns. And depending on where they are in life, they start migrating into conclusions. This is happening at a record pace in our society. Maybe you've heard of it before. It's called deconstruction. Maybe you have a friend that says, yeah, I think I'm going through deconstruction. I think I'm deconstructing my faith. And you're like, oh, like I don't even, how, what, what do I say to this person? This is happening all over at a pace that we've never seen before. And I feel like I understand it a little bit better. And maybe you've had this situation. Um, it can be very life-giving or it can be absolutely disastrous. Like, what do you do when everything you once believed about God starts to unravel. What do you do with that? I mean, it kind of feels like this little thread was on your jacket, and you saw it there, but you never did anything about it, and then one day you started pulling it, 
and it just started unraveling, and you kept doing it, and then your jacket was gone. And you felt naked, and you're like, oh, that went away. So what might this feel like to you? Because I think that's really important. Um, it might be a friendship that you have that's really strained by your beliefs. I mean, really strained, to the point where you're maybe not friends anymore. It might be a season of loss or suffering or illness that's so intense that you're wondering why God would ever let that happen. It might be a death that just really moves you. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Maybe you found a resource online, because this is where we go, right? Maybe you found a resource online where there's people there that seem to have the same questions and concerns that you do and are actually making conclusions that kind of make sense to you. And now you feel like everything that you believed is getting overturned and upended. Maybe you've been in a church before where you suffered abuse or harm. Maybe some of these public um, just destructions of Christian leaders, like maybe Ravi Zacharias, right? One of the, the best Christian apologists we've ever seen. And after his death, you realized he was living two lives. And you're like, I don't know if I can believe anymore. Maybe it's science. Maybe it's politics. You thought the church wasn't supposed to be about politics, but now it seems like it really is, isn't it? Maybe it's the injustice and the racism and just fill in the blank. Maybe you're just tired of it all and you don't want to be in a place where conflict is. And if you're in the church, believing in Jesus brings conflict. Friends, is this a spot for this? Is the church a safe place where we can say, I have a question? Now, a question's different than unbelief. Like, if you're like, I'm just, I don't want to believe, I do not believe, I, I'm dwelling in unbelief, and I want to justify my unbelief. That's different. I'm just going to say that. Versus like, I don't know, man, like, this doesn't line up with my experience. Is the church a place we can handle that? You see, I don't think it is. What I've seen around the church is that if you pose these questions, you're treated like a Judas, and so we keep it to ourselves, and we handle it ourselves. I'm going to tell you right now, that is not okay. God does not want that for you and for us. And here, this is shocking. This is not a modern problem, right? We're just this cultural snobbery. We're like, nobody's ever understood God like we have, and nobody's ever had a situation where my circumstances and my experience made me wonder if God is actually good and true and real. That is not new. It's not actually modern. So what we're going to do over the next three Sundays, is we're going to talk about the concept of deconstructing faith. We're going to see what is that, why is it happening, what do we do about it as a body, as a church, how do we handle that? And then we're going to, we're going to look to actually explore a faith that isn't just going to go the distance, but has room and a tool belt in our community to help people walk through this, including ourselves. Are you guys in on that, or do I need to go take another month off? Right? Because I see some serious looks, and, and, I, and I think the reason I'm seeing that is because you're like, oh, yeah. So I know the Lord wants this. I'm excited for it. So what happens when everything you once believed starts to unravel? Let's find out. So 
we're gonna, well, I'm gonna pray for us, and then we are gonna read through Deuteronomy chapter 31, a few verses there, and we're gonna look at Judges as well. So let's go to the Lord, because he's the creator, right? We're, he's actually revealing himself to us through his word. This is not us just seeking. So let's go to him and ask him for help. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, and I just worship you because you give us every single thing that we need to know you personally and be transformed in this relationship. Lord, you know we've had this conversation. It is hard, it is beyond belief how much pressures we have right now, um, both internally and externally and in culture and the world and at large. And so we submit ourselves to you being your creatures having been created by your hand, and we ask that you would open up your word today that we might behold its treasure, Lord, and be just transformed by it. So we commit this time to you and we thank you in the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, um, the three things that I'm gonna ask of you today. One is we're gonna talk about what is deconstruction because you might be saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. Secondly is we want to know how does deconstruction of faith happen in your life and in the church? And thirdly, what are you going to do about it? What do we do about it? Now, if, if I leave you asking more questions, that's okay. Like, we have a couple, couple more Sundays before Advent to walk through this together. But those are the three things we're going to ask. What is deconstruction? Uh, how does it happen? And what do we do about it? But to get started, so that we know this is not a modern problem, I'm going to read to you out of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 7, and then I'm going to jump over to Judges. And here's just a quick background on that. Deuteronomy is at the, is the fifth book of the Bible. It's the end of the Pentateuch, Penta being five, the first five books. It's like the law. It, you see Moses, you see the, the generation of, of Israel, and God established his relationship and covenant with them. Deuteronomy is kind of like a, a summary of everything. Moses is getting ready to die. Israel is, is on the steps of the promised land, right there in Moab, on that plains there. And Moses is like, hey, we, I'm going to recount our history so that you know what Yahweh has done. I'm going to tell you what really matters. There's a re, re, uh, uh, recapitulation of the Ten Commandments. It shows you that this is a, a, a faith of love, right? The Shema's in there in Deuteronomy 6, that you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you learn how to trust him. So Moses does this, and then we're going to read in Judges, which is a couple generations later, to see how it worked out, Okay. So 31, verse 7, Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. Constant refrain. He will not leave or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. You know, that's a command. You know that God commands you to be strong? Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests and the sons of Levi who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel, and Moses commanded them. At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, which is celebrating Exodus, when all of Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law... But for all of Israel in their hearing, and here's how that worked out. Verse 12, assemble everyone, the people, the men, the women, the little ones, and the sojourner within your towns. Every single verse, 
person, including the resident aliens or the immigrants who identified with Israel. Assemble them all that they may hear and learn. Oh, there's a learning process. Learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all his words of this law that their children who have not known it Right? This is not the generation who is wandering in the wilderness. This is not the generation of conquest like Joshua's generation. This is a couple generations later. That they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. Man, I'm, I'm jazzed up. This sounds really good. How could anything go wrong? So Moses dies. Then Joshua's about ready to die. Judges chapter 1, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So they set up themselves in the promised land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had been seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. That's good. I mean, they'd seen it with their own eyes. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, into the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Listen here. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he, the Lord, had done for Israel. So the generation that comes up, notice it doesn't say they didn't know the Ten Commandments. They didn't know the rules. They didn't know what wisdom literature was. They didn't know what the festivals were. No, they knew. They probably participated in them well. It says they did not know the Lord. They didn't know Yahweh or understand what he had done with their parents. Verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, here we go, and served Baals, and they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, in other words, submitted to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Man, I hate this story. Friend, what you're experiencing is not modern at all. And God has given us a way to understand it and to move forward. We're going to get to understanding this text as we understand how deconstruction happens. But first, I want to define it. What is deconstruction? Well, if you've ever heard of it before, it's a literary concept. It, identi- it like looks at the relationship between text and meaning. This is exactly what we're talking about. This is really not what we're talking about when we say deconstructing faith. But I think it's important that you know that because there's a very long lineage of deconstruction both in the Bible and in history. So where where does that start? It probably starts with St. Augustine, who's my personal sponsor. I love him. And he came to faith in his 30s. He tried everything. Nothing worked out. The Lord got a hold of him, and it changed his entire life. Not only was a prolific believer and priest, he was an author, a philosopher, and basically set Western thought. But what he said was, because he said, I'm seeking for something authentic. And the way he said that in the city of God is, 
man, I am full of disordered loves. Not that I love the wrong thing, I love the right thing, but in the wrong order. Somehow I take the gifts of God and put them as essentials to me, and the giver himself, God himself, gets kind of worked into the mix, and he hated that. He wanted authentic faith. The Apostle Paul in chapter 7 of Romans would say it this way, I do the very thing I hate, and the thing I love I don't do. What's up? Who's going to deliver me from this wretched body of death? Oh, Christ Jesus, my Lord. So the search for authenticity started with Augustine. Maybe if you look at, I don't know, maybe Jacques Derrida, who's probably the author of modern deconstructionism, who would say, really, the meaning doesn't lie in the text. It lies in you as you engage the text. It's impossible to communicate, which is a lot what Nietzsche said. And here's what I want you to know about all this. There is a migration of meaning from objectivity to subjectivity. And it took hundreds and hundreds of years. And so existentialism, Nietzsche was all about experience over essence. What really matters is your experience, not what's essential. You want to find out what's essential? Seek your sincere desires, and there you will find it. And so this migration to self for seeking meaning is the underpinning and the foundation for you being so lost in your faith because you have competing desires, you don't even want to talk about it. We have to understand this culture to understand where we're at. And here's what you might say. Nobody walks around saying, oh, I think I'm going to deconstruct my faith. No, there's some really smart people that might say that. I wouldn't say it that way. Here's how maybe you said it. It's really hard for me to believe, fill in that doctrine, because that doesn't make sense of my experience in real life. Now that I know you've said. It's really hard for me to believe what the Bible says about sex, one man and one woman in marriage, because in my experience, that's dumb. I don't have those desires. I have different desires. It's really hard for me to believe you should give generously and basically send most of your time and money to others, because in my experience, that's not life-giving. So I don't know if I really need to believe that. And so at some point, it starts to cascade, and you say, hey, maybe I don't believe any of it. That's what deconstructing faith is. If we were to define it, we would say it's taking a critical look at what you believe and getting rid of what's false and holding on to what's true. That's what deconstruction of faith means. But your condition to believe, the only way you can honestly do that authentically is to filter it through your own desires and experience. Let's just be honest about that. Now, deconstruction isn't the enemy. I think it's good to take a critical look at what you believe and discard what's false and hold fast to what's true. We'll get to that more so in a moment. But I want you to know this. If you're suffering through this or you know somebody who is, this is terrifying. Especially if you grew up in the church or you are a devout Christian, it's terrifying. It's very disorienting. It's not fun. So a word to the wise, if you have somebody in your life that is suffering through this or walking through this, 
please don't freak out. That, that's one of the reasons it walks out of the church. Stop panicking. Panicking doesn't help, all right? We can walk through this together. Actually, the church is a perfect place for us to walk through this together, and we'll talk more about that. But don't panic, because deconstruction produces an isolation that is so painful. You feel like you're alone in the world. And what do you do? Well, you Google something, you find out other people have other concerns, and then you basically are converted to a new community, a new proposition, a new people, a new place. That pressure is going to be on you for the rest of your life. Okay? So we need to get some tools to understand that. The isolation that it produces is just numbing. You ever watch these Discovery Nature channels, and you see like a pack of 300 gazelles in the field, and you're like, oh, isn't that pretty? And then there's like, there's like a cheetah who's like sitting up in the tree going, I'm going to handle that, right? I'm dinner. And then he, like a couple of cheetahs come out. Do they pack hunt? I don't know. One cheetah comes out, and the whole thing runs as a pack. And then there's one little one who's like, I should turn right instead. What we don't say, and he breaks from the pack, what we don't say is, this is awesome, great, I'm glad that you want to do that, right? Seek your heart's desire, and, you know, it's all going to work out. What are we saying? No, get back to the middle of the pack, you're never going to make it on your own. And then 10 seconds later, he's being chewed up. You don't survive outside of this pack. Hey, I can tell you that. I was gone from you for two months, and it... I can't do this on my own. I have you guys. So there's a terrible isolation. That's what deconstruction is. It's looking at what you believe, getting rid of what's false, and holding what's true. In and of itself, it's not a danger, but it, it is very dangerous because of how we understand and come to, to believe what is true. So secondly, what is, what is it now? What is, like, how does it happen? How does deconstruction happen in the church or in faith? I want to tell you, it's, it's not new. So Israel had two questions that was always churning in their brain, especially as we get through into the promised land. And one of them is this. Is God really going to go with us? That was a question they always had in their minds. Secondly is, will he actually deliver the Holy Land to us, the thing he's promised. Is he reliable in that? Because honestly, in my experience, it seems like he doesn't go with us. Because our parents told us about this pillar of cloud, and it was in the back, and it was in the front, and it was lit up at night like a thunderstorm, and all of Mount Sinai was on fire. I've never seen anything like that. I'm just going to be honest. It seems to me the closer we get to the promised land, the more we fight, the more people we lose, this does not make sense of our experience. Is God going with us or not? And is he actually going to deliver this place to us? Have you seen the Philistines? They own the ports. Have you seen the Canaanites? They have technology. They have buildings. They have stuff we've never had. These are not agrarian societies exclusively like us. We don't know what we're doing. So it bothered them. Do you understand where they were? And there's a generation that hadn't seen what their grandparents had seen, didn't experience like they did. 
And it says that they went after other gods. Does that make sense to you? I always hate that part of the Bible. Why would you worship a Baal? Okay, here's how this works. You, you believe God for the big things, right? I believe he created me. I believe in um, that Christ loves me and died for me. I believe all these things. But the disconnect comes in the day-to-day life. What about that? Like, I need some control over my day-to-day life. Do you? How do I get it? Well, that's, therein lies the question. For Israel and this, this new generation, let me just give you a quick primer on these gods. Here's four of the gods you see throughout the Old Testament all the time. El, which was a bull. And then you had Dagon, who was the god of grain. Then you had Baal, who was the god of rain. And then you had Ashtaroth, and she was like overseeing fertility. If you're an agrarian society, what makes life work? Livestock that breeds and and grows, grain that grows, rain that comes at the right time because it's a semi-arid area, and oh, we want to have kids. We're going to populate this place. Every single one of those gods is how the other nations control day-to-day environments. And these kids, these generations are like, is it so wrong to take an Asherah tree and put it in our house? Like, maybe it does help with fertility a little bit. Or if you don't like that, we'll cut it into a totem pole and then put it on the property somewhere. Is that so bad? We just, you know, we really care. I mean, we just got done with the Day of Atonement. We know he loves us and da-da-da-da-da. Why is he so insecure? Maybe, like, we're having trouble with our bulls. Maybe we should go worship El. Maybe we should bring in just like Baal. She just put the little thing right there and, you know, maybe it'll rain more. Oh, it's plausible, isn't it? Do you want to fight with everybody around you? Here's how it works out in the church. I love Jesus, but please don't tell me who to have sex with, who to sleep with. I love Jesus, but please don't tell me how to spend money. Please don't tell me how to spend my privacy and my time. That's how I control my life. That's how I get comfort and security. Everybody wants to control comfort and security. They, it was plausible to them to worship the foreign gods because they controlled life, according to the other people around there. So for us, when that starts to happen, it's not just that you're importing people into your faith, you're choosing another god. Right? Because it's not just a list of rules, it's a marriage. So what are our two biggest questions? Well, deconstruction pivots on two questions. One is, is God good? It's a restatement of what Israel was worrying about. Will God go with us? And the second question that deconstruction seeks to answer is, is this really true and real? which is a restatement of, is God reliable? Can we believe him? So we seek to answer these things. So how does it happen? It happens a lot of different ways. And I want to tell you that deconstruction or belief goes beyond evidence and intellect. Now, true, there are intellectual questions and I, if you've ever been a part of a church that shuns those, that's too bad. I'm sorry. If we've ever shunned that, I'm sorry as well. Because intellect 
matters. We're told to transform our minds. But deconstruction, sometimes they say, I'm just looking for evidence, man. I just, I need to stick to the intellectual proofs. I'm going to prove to you that's not true. Are you ready? You ready for this? Are there things in the Bible you don't want to believe? Oh, the heart's in it. There are things in the Bible that I have a hard time believing, even though I do. There are things in the Bible that you, ha- you don't want to believe. Maybe it's hell. Maybe it's, I don't know. So your, heart's in, your heart has a dog in the fight. It's not just evidence. I know this is true. I had a good friend of mine who's an atheist, and we just like, we always go back and forth and said, hey, dude, if I p- could prove to you that Jesus was there, if I had like a videotape there, would you believe, or a, a camera, a phone, whatever they have now, he said, would you believe? He's like, no. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, you got me. I don't want to believe. Friends, there are things you don't want to believe. You need to understand that about yourself. So that brings a different lens onto what deconstruction is and how it happens. It's more of a heart thing than we're willing to let on. So that's what deconstruction is. That's how it happens. It is not a modern problem. So what do we do about it? Again, we can't go exhaustive today, but I want to give you a framework for thinking about doubts and questions and concerns that lead you to conclusions. I'm going to read you something out of the Atlantic. This is an article called The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. October edition, Peter Wenner. He's quoting somebody that publishes Christian commentaries, Erdman. And this quote says, the evangelical church in the U.S. over the last five decades has failed to form its adherence into disciples. So there is great hollowness. All that was needed to cause the implosion that we have seen was a sufficiently provocative stimulus, and we have that stimulus now. So what the Atlantic article is saying Church isn't really about being transformed by the gospel, is it? It's a safe place for your politics. It's a place to incubate your social justice cause. All these things matter, but if that's what your church is about, when it leaves, you are going to leave too. Or when they let you down, you will vacate the premises. And he's saying, we really haven't been making disciples that understand how to own their own faith. We've got a bunch of babies who are coming in, who are, who are it's, a, it's, a, it's a religion of affinity. Hey, I like you. You're cool. Let's hang out. Let's do this. It's about people and place and position. But when the proposition actually starts to confront you, you realize you don't like it anymore. And I can get friends elsewhere, right? I can do good elsewhere. Maybe they're better than us. So it is about you owning your faith. So what do we do about it? Well, you have to learn how to live in your faith. You follow me? These, if you have a 10-year-old and you're a 5-year-old that grew up in the church, did you know that 60% of them have a massive deconstruction event somewhere between 18 and 35? It's coming, folks. It's, it's not happening because of our culture and world. It's always happened. We just don't give the tools to walk in it. Friends, you've got to own your faith. Every child that grows up in the church has an inherited faith, and that's good. At some point, you need to learn how to live in it, and we need to teach you how to do that. 
So how do we live in the faith? I'm just going to drop three things here. Again, we'll talk more about it as we go. One is this. Man, unpack your boxes. Have you ever leased a house or been renting an apartment? Do you treat that place different than you do if you owned it? Yeah. In fact, sometimes I don't even unpack everything. I'm a couch surfer. Are you couch surfing Christianity? Do you bounce from place to place? When complications happen, do you roll? No. Unpacking your boxes means you start to own your faith. Here's what it feels like. It feels like you have a relationship of commitment in this place. You have a relationship of accountability in this place. We have a shared outcome of mission and glory in this place. That's called living in your faith. You have a new family in this place. Jesus was very clear when his family came looking for him because they thought he was losing his mind. He said something even more outrageous, especially in the ancient Near East culture. They're like, hey, Jesus, your family's over there. It's like, really? Because here, 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 and here, everyone who does the will of my father is my brother and sister. What? What you normally do when you have doubts is you look for places where you aren't accountable, don't you? Friends, you got to unpack the boxes. you got to live in it. So that, I mean, we got, we got like 20 people downstairs right now that normally go to the service because they're in foundations. And for whatever reason, they decided to explore a relationship of commitment, accountability, shared outcome. That's how a family works, right? That's how our families work. So unpack your boxes. Second, discern culture from core. This is a big one, friends. I wish I had more time, but we'll talk about it in the future. When you came to Jesus, your faith had a package. Let's call that package or that shell that you unwrapped its culture. I came to faith in a youth group. I was in a Christian heavy metal band. It had a bunch of kids around there. We did youth rallies on Sunday night. Is any of that core, or is it the culture that protected the core, or the experience that came with it? What is it? Is it core to my faith, or is it just the culture I was in? Thank you. I hope it's just the culture, because I'm not in a Christian heavy metal band anymore. I don't go to youth group. We don't have youth rallies here. The fact is, you grew up in a system when you, your faith, when you came to faith, and, it, and when that system falls apart, many times you're like, whoa, I don't know if I can believe anymore. So is the church a place, like, do you need to be a Christian, do you need to, like, embrace the, the conservative political agenda to be a Christian? Is that core or culture? Oh, people are like, oh no, I feel like I'm a culture. It's not core. Do you need to be a social justice leader in your community to be a Christian? Is that core or culture? These are hard, aren't they? You might have been in a church where you guys just changed the world. And you go to another church, you're like, these people aren't even Christians. Well, you're called to love neighbor above self, that can take a lot of, like, yeah, we should be concerned about justice, but it's a culture. What about marriage? Should you be married to be a Christian and to really thrive in a church? Is that core or culture? You guys don't like this game, do you? <laughs> what is it? It's a culture. 
Is marriage good? Yeah. Is marriage a gift? Yes. Should everybody seek marriage? Yes. But the Apostle Paul says, no, actually, some people should consider not getting married because God's called them to something different. So you have to discern that some of the things that might be disorienting you are you've lost a culture, not your faith. Oh, well, I thought all churches did that. No, they don't. Discern it, friends, discern it. And lastly, to live in your faith, you need to start asking the questions. Don't sit on them. Don't sit on them. Maybe there's a doctrine that we believe as a church that you don't know if it's right or not, or you, you really have a hard time believing. Come ask the question. My community group leaders are freaking out already. Here's what you do. You, asking the question is not Googling it. The internet is not a spiritual formation place. If you're finding information off of the internet and saying, actually... It's not that there's not true things there, but like Pastor Reeves said, we are always meditating. Your brain is always grinding on something. Either it's going to be in this community, through the word, empowered by the spirit, so it becomes more real and life-giving to you, or you're going to sit around and scroll and think that you're learning something. Remember, whatever fills your life is forming you. So ask the question. I already told the first service, and I'm going to stick to it. Tuesdays at this building from lunch, 12 to 1. I eat lunch 12 to 1. So most people do too here that work here. Let's talk. Tuesday talk. Come on in. I'm not going to teach, but I'll be happy to sit there and, well, here's the thing. And we talk about it. We're just going to talk about it for an hour. Right? It's not going to be a lecture. We'd be happy to field those questions because, friends, you are not going to survive on your own, and Google is not going to grow you up in Christ. Live in this. Let's, let's live in this faith. I ended my sabbatical by going to a funeral. It's not fun. And during that funeral, there was a kid up there whose mom had died of violent cancer. He's like, I don't, she was so loving and so giving, I don't understand why she had to be taken like this. That, my friends, is an honest question. And in the moment, the Lord said that, Jason, that. You need to teach him and help him understand that what he's experiencing looks a lot like what I've done for him and for his mom. I suffered great injustice. I quoted Psalm 22 as I was dying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because I had made a wrong conclusion. Not because I was reading a script. Because I was actually forsaken in your sin. And I did it so that his mom can walk through suffering into glory. Maybe that is not a satisfying answer for him because we will not know everything, either on this side of glory or the next, but it's how God answers the problem of evil. He answers it in his body for you. The most unjust thing that's ever happened. He's personal. You can ask him.
we can ask him together. We can give our lives to the one who loves us. We can give our lives to the one who suffered, not just to make a statement, but to make you. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. I can't, I got to publicly say this as I pray to you. I can't do this on my own. I need every one of these people in this church. I can't make it on my own. You know that, Lord. Let us understand that together, that you have given us your word, your spirit. You've given us the words of Jesus. You've given us the Bible. You've given us a family to walk together to know you. To know you. And so I pray, God, that we would do that and that sleepers in Christ would be awakened. And we commit this all to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.